You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Very appreciative of Tyson filling in over the past couple of weeks. I feel like what he was able to teach on regarding worship really sets the stage for where we're going to be this morning back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 4. Um, and if you did not get a chance to look at the article that he posted on The City by John Piper about how good thing or how to know when good things in your life have become idols in your life, I highly encourage you to take the time to read through that article. It's really helpful. It's a great heart check to determine if you are enjoying the things that God has given you appropriately or has it moved into an area of covetousness and idolatry where those things have now gained an inappropriate place in your life. So I'd encourage you to take a look at that article um, if you didn't get a chance to do so. In Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to read the text for us this morning before we jump in. In verse 4, we looked previously um, at the call of God upon Abram's life, uh, the covenant that he seeks to establish with Abram. And today we see Abram's response to that call that's been placed upon his life by God. So starting in verse 4, it says, So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak at, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And and Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. The last couple of weeks, uh, we've seen kind of a, a foundation for the importance of Abraham for the New Testament believer. We said a couple of weeks ago that the life of Abraham, how he is called to salvation, how he grows in his faith, it's an example for all of us as believers. It, it functions as the prototypical example for us as to how one is called to salvation and how one grows in their faith in salvation until Jesus Christ returns. Um, And so Abram, as we work through this in Genesis, serves as a great example for us about our own faith and how our own faith should be progressing. We saw also a couple weeks ago that God calls us to salvation, expecting that we follow him fully with a response of faith that intentionally spills over into the lives of those around us. We said that uh, if you look in Genesis chapter 11 and you compare a similar passage in Acts chapter 7, what you find is that God called Abram while he was living in one city, and his dad kind of organizes the trip, and dad moves them to Haran, and then they settle down there, and they don't go any further. And so we said that Terah, his dad, gets on board with this call, but doesn't really see it through. He has a strong start, but he doesn't have a strong finish. When God calls us to obedience, he calls us to go all the way in that obedience. And he also calls us in a way where he expects the blessings that he gives to us to spill over to those around us. God says, Abram, I'm going to bless you, 
with the purpose of you being a blessing to others. And so God never calls and promises blessings to us for those blessings to remain isolated in our life. Instead, God blesses us to then turn around and spill into the lives of other people. And then uh, two weeks ago or three weeks ago, we saw that the call to salvation is ultimately a call to leave the trinkets of this fading world in order to receive the promised treasures of the world to come. Essentially, God calls Abram to leave everything that he knows, leave everything that he possesses, and he promises him everything and more. But it's contradictory to Abram if he's trying to reason through this. God says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. Now leave everybody that you know that already thinks you're a great person. Leave your inheritance behind that would be a great starting point resource-wise to build a nation. Leave the land behind that you are going to inherit from your father. Leave all of that and go to a new place where nobody knows you, where you possess nothing, where, where the land is already occupied, and it's there where I'm going to make a great nation out of you. So it defies human logic Abraham has to work through what God is saying, and he has to determine if he believes what God is promising. We said that salvation doesn't require that we make promises to God. Rather, it involves us believing promises that he makes to us. And our perseverance in the faith is tied to our ongoing belief in the promises of God. See, every other religion teaches that we have to make promises to a God for salvation. I promise I'm going to do this. I promise I'm going to do this. I promise I'm going to do this. Christianity teaches that God makes promises to us, that he sends his son to do this and this and this and this. And we believe those promises for salvation. That's what separates us from other religions. So we come to our text today in Genesis chapter 12, verse four, and we'll start with our summary sentence this morning. This this is a summary of everything that we're talking about today. Those who truly believe the word of the Lord will forsake all else to become worshipers of the Lord and to serve in his program to bring blessing to the world. That's what we see happening in Abraham's life. He receives the word of the Lord. He forsakes everything to become a worshiper of the Lord and to serve in his program of bringing blessing to those around him. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God makes promises. And what we see that unfolds from Genesis 12 all the way to the end of Revelation, it's the unfolding of God's plan from Genesis 12. Both the unfolding of it in the individual life of Abram, then the national life of Israel, and then the global uh, inclusion of all nations into that great plan of blessing. And so um, we see that unfolding here moving forward from Genesis chapter 12. Those who truly believe the word of the Lord forsake all else to become worshipers of the Lord and to serve in his program to bring blessing to the world. Some simple points for us this morning in our text. First of all, we see that Abram believed God. He believed God and he began to move as a a demonstration of that belief. But what exactly did Abram believe? It says Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him and he was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. What is it that Abram had to believe that would cause him to forsake everything that he knew? Ultimately, I think it's an uh, the way to to express that is that Abram believed that Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, the, the, the Jewish name for how God reveals himself. Yahweh superseded any other God he had experienced. And the life being promised to him superseded any hopes he had with his current life. 
So Abram has this interaction with this, this new God, right? We, we saw previously that Abram and his family were idolaters. They were worshiping most likely the moon God of their city. Remember, everything got distorted at Babel. Uh, idolatry gets introduced and man rejects the knowledge that he has about God, Romans 1, and embraces a new knowledge about God where he's worshiping the creature rather than the creator. So Abram is a worshiper, as Tyson talked about the last couple of weeks. He's a worshiper, but he's not worshiping properly. He's not worshiping the right object. So Yahweh shows up and expresses himself in a way, reveals himself in a way to where Abram now believes this God is better than any of the other gods I've been exposed to. And the promises that he is making to me supersede any hopes that I have of creating a life worth living myself. So, so God's calling him to a new life, calling him to a new way of worship. And Abram says, you know what? I believe that what's been presented to me is better than what I'm currently experiencing. Most of us, depending on our age, had to reconcile that when the gospel was presented to us as well. We were introduced to a new God that previously we didn't fully understand. Someone shared this God of the Bible with us, shared who he was, shared some of the promises that he's made. And there was a reconciliation that happened in our minds as to whether this God that we were being introduced to was better than the God that we had previously been serving. Whether we were saved out of a false religion or whether we were saved simply from worshiping ourselves and living for ourselves. All of us had to reconcile, is this God better than living for the God that I've been living for? And is the life that's promised through the gospel, a life that promises suffering, a life that no, in no way guarantees that the experiences and circumstances are better once you start following Jesus, but a, a promise that's, uh, that's attached to the gospel that promises future things, are those promises better than what we currently experience here in this life? All of us had to reconcile that when we said yes to Jesus. Same pattern we see in Abram's life. He's presented with this God and he believes that what this God is promising is better than the things that he's experienced in the first 75 years of his life. And we've talked, we talked a couple of weeks ago how we as humans have a hard time reconciling that Romans 4 says that Abram never wavered in his faith. And yet we can think of story after story where we would say he's wavering in his faith, right? He's not trusting God for his safety. He's lying about his wife being his sister. He's uh, he's wanting to generate a baby with someone that's not his wife because he hasn't had a baby yet. And God's promised to give him offspring. We can look at those stories and say, man, it really seems like Abram wavered in his faith. But if we understand that what he believed is that this God was better than any other God, and the life that he promised is better than any other life he could create himself, then we can really see how Abram never wavered in his faith. We don't have any incident where Abram is being tempted to go off and worship other gods. He still stays true to worshiping the one true God as, as he starts this journey. He's not delving into idolatry. He's not wandering away and, and experimenting with things from his past. We saw where Israel said, I want to go back to Egypt Life in Egypt was better than life in the wilderness, but we never see Abram having a discussion with his wife where he says, maybe we should go back. Maybe we should go back to Ur. Maybe we should go back to Haran. Maybe we should go back to what we know. It's not happening. It's not happening. Think about it. Abram 
gets a promise about a child, and it's 25 years later before Isaac is born. Some people in this room aren't 25 years old yet. 25 years, he's banking on a promise, and it takes 25 years for him to even start to really see it come about. But we never see him waver in thinking that he shouldn't be following this God, nor do we ever see him waver in thinking that he should go back to his old life. The only hiccups that we see are him trying to bring about God's plan or do it a little bit differently than what God's called him to do. So he doesn't waver in his faith. He's trusting this God. He's trusting in these promises. And we see his faith grow in how to do that rightly. But we don't see him wanting to go back to his previous life. It's an example for us about our own salvation, how we're to persevere in our own trust towards God. I think it's important, too, to kind of step back and put ourselves in Abram's shoes because Abram is, is experiencing similar to a let's make a deal type scenario. You remember the old game show where uh, a person would be brought up and be presented something of value and then they were tempted with the idea, do you hang on to this or do you surrender it in hopes that what behind this what that what is behind door number one is better than when you currently possess? And so the, the contestant would have to weigh out, okay, am I content with what I have, or do I hand this back to you and take a chance that what behind that what's behind door number one is better? The difference being is that Abram is standing with this choice and he's being told by, by God that what behind door number one is better. That, 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 that it's better than what you currently possess. Because it says that Abram starts off journeying to a land and he doesn't know where he's going right god doesn't lay it out specifically for him that you're going to go to this land and this is how it's going to play out and you're going to have a son named isaac he doesn't give him all that information up front and so there's a there's a gamble in a sense for abram because he's having to really weigh out do i believe what god's saying here do i believe that what he's offering is better than what i currently possess the difference is is that abram doesn't have to wonder he doesn't have to question because god is saying it's absolutely better I wouldn't offer it to you if it wasn't better. I'm not going to dupe you or trick you and and reveal what's behind door number one and it be something that you don't want. And so Abram has to weigh this out and he chooses rightly. He chooses that what God is offering is better than what he already possesses. The question for Abram is, do you want this life, the best life you can build for yourself, or do you want something far more? Do you trade what you currently have and know for a relative unknown? And that's Ultimately, what faith is about, Hebrews 11, chapter 1, before the author of Hebrews really lays out these individuals who live by faith, it says, now faith is is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's an assurance and a hope in things that are yet to become reality. Martin Luther kind of rephrases that and says, faith apprehends the things that are not present and contrary to reason, regards them as being present. Faith apprehends the things that are not present, and contrary to reason, regards them as being present. That's much of what the New Testament life is about. It's about us realizing that things that are not yet are coming, and living in reality of that, living in light of the fact, looking to heavenly things, things that are above rather than things that are below believing that Jesus is coming, believing that we've been set free from sin, and while we still labor with the sin, trusting that one day we will ultimately be set free from that sin, that we will ultimately be in the presence of Christ for eternity. 
faith, apprehending the things that are not yet and treating them as though they are. Abram believed God, and ultimately what we see here in our text is that Abram obeyed God. Back in Genesis chapter 12. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai's wife and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Abram packs up everything and goes. How did Abram obey? Abram responded to the instruction given to him by God. God spoke, Abram believed, and Abram responded. We see the author of Hebrews highlight this as well in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. That God spoke to Abram and he responded with his actions. By faith, Abram obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. If you look in Genesis chapter 12, we don't see the correlation because of the English language. But to look at the Hebrew language, we can see that Moses wants to line up what Abram did with what God called him to do. If you were to look into the original language in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country. The same verb used there for go is the same word that Moses uses for Abram went. It's also the same word used in verse 5 where it says that um, they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And then if you skip down to verse 9, and Abram journeyed on still going toward the Negev. These are the same Hebrew verbs being used here. The correlation is, is that God told him to do something. And Moses is very particular to show that Abram did exactly what God told him to do. That the verb that Moses uses for what God said to do is the same verb that he uses to describe what Abram did. Abram obeyed God. He responded to the instruction given to him by God. His belief in God led to specific action by himself. You see that? he, He receives instruction from God and then he makes personal action for himself in regards to what he's heard from God. It's what we would call obedience to the gospel in the New Testament. Back when we were studying 1 Thessalonians in chapter 1, verse 9, a real similar passage for the people in the New Testament and how they had responded. Paul says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. These people in the New Testament respond the same way that Abram did in the Old Testament. That's the the point we've been trying to make is that salvation is the same. The gospel is the same. The response is the same. Abram responded to what God said. He turned from idols to the one true living God. New Testament believers, Thessalonians, Paul has presented the gospel. It says they turned. They turned from their false gods to embrace the living God and to place their hope and trust in promises made to them about Jesus coming back. Abram's belief in God led to specific action by himself. His belief in God expected specific action from God, though. So so Abram hears what God says and he responds. But in his response, he is expecting God to do certain things, things that he has promised. 
So his expectations are rightly placed upon God because God has promised to do these things. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abram steps out in faith and he is expecting God to do something in return. Not because God owes it to him. So it's not Abram taking the approach that we said would be a legalistic approach of, okay, I've, I've worked for you, now where are my wages? Because if we fall under that system, we get death. Because ultimately God says, you've produced sin and the wages for sin is death. So it's not Abram saying, okay, I'm going to leave and now you owe me these things. You owe me a great name. You owe me a nation. You owe me blessing. Abram responds and says, okay, I'm leaving but I'm expecting you to do things because you promised to do them. You promised to do them. Now, we live under a, a faith and response type system a lot of times in our life. Uh, we, uh, we operate under a system of faith and expectation. Some examples. If, if you go online to Fandango.com, you're going to go see a movie. You and your wife are going to go see a movie one night. You want to beat the crowds. It's opening night. You want to make sure you get a ticket. You're going to go online and you're going to purchase a ticket. And in faith, you are going to trust that the ticket that you print off on your home printer, when you show that to the, to the guy or girl at the, at the uh, ticket booth, that they're going to let you in, right? You're, you're giving money, you're swiping it over the computer, and in faith, you're trusting that when you get there, they're going to let you in. We also operate in the sense if we're going to set up a meeting with someone, okay? We're going to set up a lunch meeting. We communicate and we say, okay, meet me here at such and such time. We demonstrate faith and expectation in that person by getting into our car, driving to a certain location at a certain time. The expectation is that that person will also be there. We operate under this type of system all the time. We hear things from somebody, promises from somebody. Fandango promises, if you pay, we'll let you in. Your friend promises, if you show up, I'm going to be there, barring some unforeseen circumstance. Right? We operate under this system, and, and Abram's operating under it as well with God. He says, I'm going to do this. Why? Because you've promised, you've promised me some expectations that I can hold to, things that you are obligating yourself to do towards me. God's testimony and our call to believe him supersedes man's testimony that we regularly believe. Right? If we operate under this system all the time with flawed human beings who don't always come through for us, how much more should we place our faith and trust in things that God says he will do? We trust people all the time that they will do what they say they will do. And we get let down all the time. How much more should we trust a God who's never faltered, never faltered on things that he's promised? At times, our faith in God may feel unnatural because we often must believe that which defies reality and is contrary to reason. Think about Abram and the faith that he's having to demonstrate here. Abram is old. His age provides tension to the story as we read through this. He's really not in an ideal time for a career change. He's not at an ideal time to make a move like this. He's older in life. He, he's, he's lived his life. He's earned his pay. He has an inheritance waiting for him, an earthly inheritance, that he's willing to sacrifice for a heavenly inheritance. 
but he's not at an ideal age to make this movie. He's not a, a young guy who's at a point where he's trying to figure out, okay, what am I going to do with my life? He's already made a choice about what he was going to do with his life. He's on the back end of life, and he's about to encounter a radical change. The, the, the remaining years of his life ultimately define him far more than the first 75 of his life. Abram's wife is barren. He steps out in faith, realizing that unless God intercedes, the nation that he's promising isn't happening. They've tried plenty of times to have children and, and have come to the fact and probably come to the understanding that kids just aren't going to be a part of their life. And now God comes in and says it absolutely will be a part of your life. We find from the text here that as Abram sets out to leave, Moses gives us the indication that when when Abram arrives, the land's occupied. The, the land is full of people. And so as Abram begins to march through the land, and, and you see this, if you understand, if you were to look at a map, you would understand that he's kind of marching through the land. When he actually settles in at Shechem and, and makes this altar, he's at the dead center of God's promised land to Israel. So God gives him the, the opportunity to kind of walk through the land and kind of survey the land and see a, a big perspective of what God's going to give him. But what you also find is that Abram pretty much steers clear of a lot of these cities. It's occupied. It's hostile. You'll remember from the, the curse with Noah and his kids, these are cursed people. God has promised that the Canaanites will be cursed and have to serve Noah's descendants. They're cursed and they're wicked and they're evil. And Noah is traveling through, or Abram is traveling through their land and he's, he's seeing, okay, I've got a wife that can't have kids and I'm supposed to occupy this land that is slap full of people and not nice people. Not people that are going to say, hey, go ahead, bring your people or your family. Y'all settle in here. We'll be great neighbors. It's wicked, evil people that would want to drive him out. And he shows that by the fact that he steers clear of a lot of these cities. It's true in our own life that faith and obedience always experiences opposition and obstacles. God's communicating up front to Abram, this is not going to be easy. And oftentimes in, in the gospel accounts in the New Testament, the, the truth is shared that this is not an easy decision to follow Jesus. Most of us could share story after story that after deciding to follow Jesus, we have encountered opposition and obstacles. We have encountered less than desirable circumstances. The encouragement is that God has carried us through those situations. But our faith and obedience oftentimes experiences obstacles and opposition. And Abram's no different. He shows up to this land that God has promised and he finds that it's already occupied. In my notes, I put that God calls Abram and he says, uh, Moses uses the, the word uh, for seed when it says, um, Verse 7, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. It's the same word for seed in Genesis 3.15 when God promises that through the seed of Eve, one will come to crush the serpent's head. Same word there. And God says, I'm going to give it to your seed, Abram. I'm going to give the seed, your seed, this land. What God is communicating is that he is bringing, he is bringing the seed of the woman his people to dwell with Canaanites who are the seed of the serpent with the intent of preserving his people and vanquishing Satan. This is, this is all out war that God is calling upon here. Remember, God says there's going to be enmity between you and the woman in Genesis 3. Satan thinks he's won a major battle because he's, he's deceived Adam and Eve to leave God. 
God says, I'm going to create enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, talking about Satan. So God says, yes, Satan, there are going to be people that are born into this world that, that reject me and, and choose a host of different things to follow after. But he says, I'm going to rescue a group of people, the seed of the woman, the true seed of the woman back to me. And so he's bringing that seed into this land that's wicked, full of Canaanites, full of people that are considered the seed of the serpent with the intent of giving that land to his seed, preserving his people in the midst of the wickedness and eventually vomiting out these people, judging these people as he gives it to the nation of Israel. For us as as New Testament believers, we must continue to believe the promises that God has given us as well. The promises that God gave to Abram are what keep him going through the rest of his life. He continues to cling to those promises. Several weeks ago, I gave you, hopefully in a memorable way, promises that God has made to us that we cling to as well as we move through obstacles and oppositions. All of them started with an F, not because we wanted to be cute, but because we wanted to give you something that was easy to remember. Promises that God makes. Forgiveness from our sins. The gospel promises that we do not work for our salvation, that we don't owe God anything because we could never pay him back for our rebellion. He offers us forgiveness, cleared accounts. He offers us freedom from our sin, freedom from having to work for salvation because Christ comes and earns salvation, earns righteousness for us. He promises us family. He promises us family. When we have moms and dads that have walked away or passed away, when we have an absence of kids in our own life, he promises us family through a spiritual union, through local churches where we can experience moms and dads, where moms and dads who have, who have graduated and sent their kids off, they can still enact their giftedness as parents as they pull younger believers underneath them to teach them, much like a, a spiritual mom and dad towards spiritual children. God promises that family relationship Because for some of us, when we accepted the gospel, it severed earthly relationships. There was a division that took place with earthly relationships. And God promises an abundance of family through the gospel. He promises us favor. God works good in the lives of uh, those that, that follow him. And he promises us a future, a future of glory. We see Abram continue to demonstrate his faith and that he continues to dwell in tents. He's learning patience. He's learning the fact that he doesn't get to possess this land maybe as quickly as he would like to. He travels the land constantly. He goes from Shechem into the hill country down to Bethel and Ai. He travels the land constantly while never being granted the privilege to possess the land. This defies man's longing for settlement, security, and placement. Right? There's been several in our church recently who have been in a transition period from, from moving from one location to another. And they've been in that waiting period of trying to get closings on their houses done and get houses ready. There's that uneasiness, and I think it's especially felt by the woman a lot of times. I want to be in my place. I want to get settled. I want to get things unpacked and where they need to go. Abram and Sarah are wandering. They're wandering the land, and they never really have a place to call home. The Bible says that Abram was looking to something greater than even an earthly settlement that he could attain to. Something far greater was being extended to him through these promises. I think it's worth considering, why does God not allow Abraham to have the land now? Why does God not go ahead and just say, hey, let me wipe everybody out. Let me give Abraham this land. Let me give him children to possess it. 
Do we have any indication as to why God doesn't give it to him right now? Does God ever communicate to Abraham why he's not giving it to him right now? Any thoughts? Say that again. I think you're going down the right direction because it's in Genesis. Um, Genesis 15, I believe. Verse 16. Genesis this is 15, 16. God's speaking with Abram. So he, he's informing him of why the land is not being given to him right now. He he's tells them uh, for both his encouragement, but also for future Israelite encouragement. He says they're actually going to go into oppression and they're going to be in slavery for 400 years. And, and we'll talk maybe later as to the goodness of God in the slavery in Egypt. Because ultimately what God does is he takes his really small uh, family that's that's hardly a nation at this point, transports them to Egypt, who was kind of at the height of world power at that time, and basically puts them at their back doorstep so that nobody can touch his family until they grow and expand and become a nation. Because remember, there comes a point where Pharaoh says, uh... We've been very successful at dominating everybody else around us. And what we failed to realize is that at our back doorstep, there is a nation now that could overthrow us. God's goodness in that slavery. He protects them for years and years and lets them just flourish under the resources of Egypt. But God promises, Abram says, 400 years they're going to be in Egypt. Then they're going to come out and they're going to come back to this land. Why? Why? Why are we waiting that long to give to them? It says in verse 16, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Why? For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What we see here is still God's remaining heart, not just for the nation of Israel, but for other nations as well. God says, I'm delaying my judgment upon this, this land. I'm delaying it. Their wickedness isn't to the point where I've had a complete enough about it. Remember, God came to Jonah and Nineveh and said, okay, I'm done with Nineveh. If something doesn't change, I'm judging Nineveh. Jonah goes and communicates and they repent and God, God pulls back from the judgment. Here he says, I'm not ready to give you this land. Why? Because I'm not ready to give up on these people just yet. I'm extending time for repentance and forgiveness to the Amorite people before I give it to you. Now, we ultimately know that doesn't happen, but we can still see God's grace in this story that while the shift in Genesis now is to the nation of Israel. In no way does God now abandon his involvement with other nations. God says, as much as I want to build a nation through Israel, I'm not giving up on the Amorite people just yet. So you're not getting this land until they've completely rejected their opportunity for repentance. God's grace seen in that, in that picture there. I think it's also important how Moses describes some of these locations where Abram journeys to. So back in Genesis chapter 12, it says that he settled in Shechem for a little bit, went to the Oak of Moray. He goes down to Bethel and Ai, says that he was in the hill country. And then here in verse 9, it says he journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb. 
If you skip way ahead to Numbers, chapter 13, verse 27, this is the classic tale where the children's song comes from the uh, 12 men went to spy on Canaan, 10 were bad, 2 were good. I remember that song from Children's Church, maybe. 12 men went out to look at the land right before they go in. 10 of them come back and say, there ain't no way, there ain't no how. Verse 27, they told him, we came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and there is fruit there. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negeb. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country. Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan, but Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up and once and occupy it, for we are able to overcome it. See, Moses very intentionally writes that Abram journeyed to these places years before. Years before. And what the children of Israel should have recognized, should have realized, should have clung to, is that Abram saw these places, saw the hill country, saw the Negev. And God said, this is the land that I'm giving to your people. So Israel's not coming into it even as blindly as Abram was. Israel's coming into this land and they have spies that come back and say, hey, we went to the hill country and then to Jeb and there are some people there. Newsflash, there were people when Abram was there, right? The Canaanites dwelled there. Moses even throws that in there for the benefit of the Israelites. When Abram came there, it was at the same time that the Canaanites lived there. Israel could have clung to the promise and said, you know what? There were Canaanites in Abram's time when it was promised to us. There are Canaanites now. We're talking about the same places where Abram slept and laid his head. Caleb says, hey, that's the place. Thank you, spies. You've actually told us that's exactly where we're supposed to go because I've read Genesis and I recognize the Negev and the hill country. That's what God promised to us. See, Caleb responds to God's word, hangs on to the promise and says, yeah, let's go take it. Everybody else says, nah, there's people there. And it's the same type of people that were there when Abram was promised the land. See, the encouragement for us as believers, as we grow in our strength and faith, it's to look to promises that God has made to people in the past towards his people and cling to those. See, we can read account after account of scripture. We can talk to people in our church that are, that are older than us, that have, that have seen God's faithfulness to his promises. And those truths should encourage our own faith and strengthen our own faith as we see God's faithfulness in the past. Israel failed to do that. They failed to see God's faithfulness. They failed to respond appropriately to it. Abram obeyed God, though. He clings to these promises being given to him. And then lastly here, we see Abram worshipped God. Abram worshipped God. So as he comes into the land... Everything defies logic. He he has no children. The land is occupied. He comes into the land. And when he gets there, God reaffirms this promise to him. Then the Lord appeared to Abram in verse 7 and said, To your offspring, I will give you this land. How did Abram worship? Abram embraced the responsibility of making God's name great wherever he went, allowing God to make his name great if and when he chose to. See, the promise to Abram is that your name's going to be great. But what we find when Abram comes into the land is he's all concerned about making God's name great, and he leaves his name's greatness up to God. He says, I'm going to build an altar to God. What he doesn't build is a tower, right? We saw at the Tower of Babel, people said, let's build a tower for us to what? Make our name great. 
God says, Abram, I'm going to make your name great. And when Abram gets into this land, in no way does he try to draw that greatness to his name. Instead, he starts building altars, altars that are meant to make God's name great. And he builds them everywhere he goes. He's all about making God's name great. We see this type of interaction when he talks with Melchizedek in Genesis 14. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. There's a possible exchange that's going to happen here with this king of Sodom. Sodom king wants to give a bunch of stuff to Abram, and Abram says, no, thank you. My God's taking care of me. In no way do I want the glory to shift from him and the king of Sodom's name to be made great when I become great. Abram says, my name's going to be great and I'm going to get a lot of blessing and I'm going to be great. And in no way do I want anybody to think that I'm great because of the king of Sodom. So Abram is all concerned about God's name being made great in everything that he does. Um, a couple of ways that, several ways that he worshiped. And I think I have these in your notes. Yeah. Uh, number one, Abram was faithful to communicate the glory and worth of God to others. Tyson hit on this heavily over the last couple of weeks as, as to what worship is and how it uh, shows God's worth and his value and how we acknowledge that. Abram worships God by faithfully communicating the glory or the worth of God to others before he even gets into the land. How do we know this? Well, if you go back to Genesis chapter 12, when they set out together, Obviously, Lot has had enough conversation with Abram where he says, I'm going wherever you go. Undoubtedly, Abram has communicated to Lot what he's heard from God, and Lot has bought into it. But it's not just Lot. It says Abram took Sarai, his wife. I'm sure she was along for the ride regardless. Um, she, she had bought into her husband when she married him, and she says, you know what? I'm going where you go. You're my husband. Lot says, I'm coming along. I've bought into what you're saying about God's promises. He takes all their possessions but then it says, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. Some translations say the souls that they had acquired in Haran. Now, you could originally read that in the English language and think, oh, these are servants that, that he bought. These are slaves of Abram that he bought. But if you really delve into the original language, the word for slave is absent there. What really seems to be communicated is that these are proselytes, people that have converted much like Abram had converted from a previous life of idolatry, people that have said, okay, we've spent some time with Abram here in Haran, and we're buying into these promises that this Yahweh has made to him. We're going with you. These aren't descendants of Abram. They don't have a rightful claim to the promises because they've descended from Abram. They're not his seed. They're not Israelite people. They're people that were living in Haran when Terah settled in Haran. We said that God's goodness in the midst of Terah's sin is that these people would have never made the journey had they not settled in Haran. But at some point in this tarrying time in Haran, Abram has conversations with these people and they say, you know what? We're going with you. Abram communicated God's worth to people around him in a way where it attracted people to his new God. He was communicating the gospel in a way where he showed God's worth, that he's better than any other God you've experienced and his promises of a future life are better than any life that you can build for yourself here in Haran. And these people go with him. He was faithful to communicate the glory of God to these other people. But secondly, he was faithful to establish God's presence 
wherever he went. He sets up altars at Shechem and Bethel. He claims those areas for Yahweh. It says that he comes to the Oak of Moray. That sounds like a a setting from a, a Lord of the Rings book, right? Like they're journeying to get rid of the one ring and they had to take a stop at the Oak of Moray where there were some trolls and goblins, right? But it's real life stuff. It's not a fairy tale. The Oak of Moray most likely, most likely was a place of worship for the Canaanite people. It was a significant structure, a significant setting, a, a, a monument for them where they would have gone. And the, 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 the name Moray means teaching or oracles. It was most likely a place where they gathered to hear things about the God that they worshipped. And what's significant is that Abram goes to that location and says, I'm going to construct an altar for the one true God. He claims the land for God, the land that's being given to his seed. Same thing at Bethel, another significant place of worship for the Canaanite people. He shows up and in that religious establishment establishes God's presence through this altar. But when he settles here in Shechem, it says, um, then the Lord appeared to Abram. The wordage being used there is what we would call a theophany. This isn't just God speaking. This is God visually in, in physical form coming to Abram. Now, the way that we understand the Trinity is that when, when God appears in physical form, that it's through the person of Jesus Christ. So more than likely, Abram, Abram receives these promises from Jesus Christ. A, a vision or an experience of Jesus Christ here in the Old Testament. Jesus coming in physical form to appear to Abram to have this conversation. He says, to your offspring, I will give this land He builds these altars rather than towers so that God's name over his own name is the one that remains. Abram sees his tents as temporary, but the altars signify that God's presence is permanent even after Abram exits this earth. He's concerned about God's glory. And then lastly here in this section, Abram was faithful to publicly worship God with others. After he leaves the Oak of Moreh, says that he travels down between Bethel and Ai, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. I think Tyson tied this back to Genesis chapter 4. Okay, remember we said back in Genesis chapter 4 that God's people began to call upon the name of the Lord? Um, verse 26 of chapter 4, To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. You remember when we taught on that passage, we said that it was more than just Enosh and a couple of people praying to God on their own. That what was taking place there was public worship. No longer were people just offering personal sacrifices. They were coming together in unity and saying, we worship the one true God. Let's do that together. The the beginnings of a church service found in Genesis chapter 4. And Abram reciprocates that in Genesis chapter 12 and says, okay, my family, Lot, Sarai, And the people that came with us from Haran, we're going to gather around this altar and we're going to worship God today. We're going to do that publicly, perhaps in such a way that the Canaanites even saw it. Because we learn later that there's at least 300 of these people that came from Haran with Abram. So they have a giant worship service and call upon the name of the Lord. You'll remember, too, that we highlighted the fact that calling upon the name of the Lord means praising him for his attributes, praising him for his activities in your life. It's important to note that public worship has been a defining behavior of God's people since the beginning. 
lest we ever get to the point where we wonder, is gathering with other people a, a necessary part of being a Christian? Is that something that we're commanded to do? Lest we ever get to the point technology-wise where we, where we begin to realize, I could stay at home and see uh, and listen to a sermon on television, and I could play worship music in my car all week long and, and check it off and say, okay, I've had church. Lest we ever think that worship is supposed to be isolated individually, let us remember that from the very beginning, God's people have been gathering for public worship. It's always defined God's people. Why? Because we need the encouragement of others that call upon the name of the Lord as well. Not just us isolated, but seeing others and learning from others and seeing God's faithfulness in the lives of others. That is necessary for us to persevere in our own faith. And Abram says, now that we're in our new land, let's go ahead and establish right up front that we publicly worship together. Think about it. It's the first thing that really should happen in the life of a believer when they relocate somewhere else. When they move somewhere else, one of the first things that needs to happen is where are we going to gather as a family to publicly worship with other believers in this new town, in this new city? Why? Because it defines God's people. They've always gathered together for public worship. Some implications from this story. First of all, Abram is introduced to the true God and his comprehension of God's greatness and goodness leads to his created obligation to worship. Kind of piggybacking off of some of the things that, that Tyson taught in my absence. Abram was worshiping before God came to him, but he's now introduced to the true God. And when he comprehends God's greatness and goodness, it leads him to worship. His created obligation to worship his creator. We see him show that through these altars and through this calling upon the name of the Lord. Abram responds in obedience and, and faith, and it leads to worship and the acknowledgement of God's greatness and goodness. Secondly, Abram's worship is now directed appropriately. What he had been doing outwardly, he had been going through the outward sacrifices. He had, he had been worshiping culturally, but it's now right inwardly as his worship is directed towards the right object. He's now worshiping appropriately. He's worshiping the right object, the one that deserves his worship. And then lastly, Abram's comprehension of what God was promising him in light of who he was as a man led him to gratitude and appreciation shown through his worship. So Abram comprehends the greatness and the goodness of God. He, um, he understands and comprehends the promises that are being made. And when he recognizes who he is as a sinful man, it leads him to gratitude and appreciation. And he demonstrates that through his worship, through the construction of these altars. The same response that we're to have in our own salvation. God calls, we respond, we obey, and it leads to a lifestyle of worship where we show his worth to others around us, which leads to our application today. We have a responsibility to relish in God's great worth as we meditate on his works and promises to his people. God's worth, his value increases in our hearts the more we meditate on his works through his word, the more we, we respond and meditate to the promises and his faithful fulfillment of those promises to his people. As we meditate on those truths, as we see God's, God's greatness, 
and how he's playing out his story. We see it in, in people of old in, in God's word. We can see it in contemporary times through people we interact with right now, God's greatness and his faithfulness. We have a responsibility to relish in that, to enjoy that, to allow it to increase, increase our, our appreciation and the value that we place upon God. We relish, we have a responsibility to relish in his worth. We do that by meditating on his works and promises. We have a responsibility to respond to God's great worth. So as we relish in it, as we enjoy hearing about God's works and his faithfulness, we have a responsibility to respond to that now, praising him publicly with our lips. Why do we sing, why do we sing songs on a Sunday morning? At times it may feel outdated. We don't do this in any other setting, right? We don't get together and sing songs at work, right? So, so maybe at times it feels foreign. Like why, why do we as, maybe especially as men, maybe at times it feels awkward as a man to come into a setting and stand with women and children and sing songs. At times it can feel very children's churchish. Like why, why are we doing this? Because God's word says that as we, as we relish in his goodness, that it leads to us praising him publicly. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, And Tyson does such a great job of selecting songs that highlight God's worth so that as we come together after a week of relishing in it, we can express it publicly with our lips. In Hebrews 13, 15. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. We come together on a Sunday morning with the opportunity to acknowledge him with our lips through song. We, we demonstrate the worth that we place upon him through the songs that we sing, through the lyrics that we meditate on. So we do that with our lips publicly, while inwardly we continue to increase our trust in him with our hearts. We cling to those promises inwardly. We express our belief in those promises outwardly, publicly with our lips. And then lastly, we have a responsibility to establish God's presence wherever we are present. By drawing others to God's great worth. Okay, so we, we relish in God's greatness. We meditate on his works. We, we publicly profess his worth together. We come together. We call upon the name of the Lord. We, we talk about his greatness. We talk about his goodness. And then we leave with the intent of establishing God's presence everywhere that we're present. And we seek to draw people, other people, to God's great worth. Using Abram in his life and his example of faith, bringing it into New Testament times for us and seeing the correlation that what Abram was doing, how he was living, is the same way that we're called to live as believers today. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.savhope.org. Thank you.